Okay, welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive, joined by my fellow co-founder, John Egan. John, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. It's John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher. Delighted to be here with an old friend, Dean Kyo, for another rundown on innovation and construction. So we're really excited. We're in uh, LA this week and to have Ian Keo, who is the CEO and founder of Hyper and also well known as the father of Dynamo to be joining us to talk about innovation in AC. You're very welcome, Ian. Do you want to give us a little introduction to yourself, you know, where you've come from and a little bit about Hyper and we can get, get the conversation going? Yeah, of course. I'd like to start by saying I love to hear Irish people pronounce my last name. Um, it's a, it's the a proper special. way. Isn't, um, it is an Irish second name, right? It, 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 is, it is indeed. Um, you know, I'm obviously far removed from Ireland, but uh, to hear, <laughs> hear the pronunciation is wonderful. Hi, great. Um, great to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, yeah, my my background. Let's see. Well, you know, I started a long, long time ago. I started as a as a uh, an artist. I studied sculpture and then moved to New York City with, you know, stars in my eyes and dreams to be a sculptor and very quickly, you know, started working in fabrication for architects and artists in New York City and, uh, you know, working in a fabrication studio, learning how to how to build kind of anything. And then very quickly decided that I wanted to make the transition to architecture. So I went to got a graduate degree from architecture uh, in architecture from Parsons in New York City, and then immediately went after graduate school and started working at Bureau Happold Consulting Engineers. Because throughout this thing, you know, and throughout my history, I, I just kind of made these jumps when I decided I wanted to go in a, in a slightly different direction. So I, I kind of figured during graduate school, I didn't want to go and work in a typical architecture job. I was much more interested in the in the way that buildings went together. And Bureau Happold at the time, and still, were doing some of the most amazing projects I'd ever seen all around the world. And so uh, I joined uh, the, the office in New York City, which at the time was very small. It's now very large. And we worked on amazing projects kind of all over the world. And that's actually where I cut my teeth writing software, because the, the big problem that the engineers had in that office was they had analysis tools that were doing analysis. They had modeling tools. You know, Rhino was just kind of coming on the scene. Revit had just come on the scene. So I, you know, the first day I showed up was the first day we started working with Revit in that office. And they had to get information from this package to that package and everything else. So a lot of my early software was just writing tools to help the engineers, uh, structural, mechanical, get data from one package to another, help with different types of complex analysis. And of course, Bureau Happold was doing really complex projects. So there was a lot of geometry, rationalization, that kind of stuff. So I had, I had been working for them for a while, moved out to LA in about 2010 and was still working with Bureau Happold here in their Los Angeles office. And a piece of software that I had written uh, called GoBim, which was for the first generation iPhone, uh, I don't know if many of you remember, but in 2007, the first generation iPhone, it was really like the first mobile device that was powerful enough to, to really look at sophisticated 3D models. So I'd written a piece of software to allow you to view uh, BIM. You could export from Revit and view it on your iPhone. I sold that to a company called Vela Systems, which was a startup uh, uh, outside of Boston who were building a field issue management application for the first generation iPad which came online in about 2010, 2011, and made the jump full-time into software. So I went to work for them, uh, worked on iOS and programming in Objective-C, 
And then they were quickly gobbled up by Autodesk, you know, after about a year and a half after I joined the company. So that's how I got into Autodesk. And then the other project that I had started prior to that, which was Dynamo, the open source visual programming language for Revit. Uh, you know, once I was in Autodesk for about a year, they said, hey, do you want to turn that into a project inside Autodesk? And we'll support the open source, you know, Dynamo effort and we'll build a team around that and had a great time over five or six years building that team uh, and building that product inside Autodesk, which was uh, really fun and incredible and left in 2017 to start Hypar, which, you know, as we talk about it more today, you know, the more people learn about Hypar, the more they realize it's a sort of a continuation of of all of these steps of research over time it's it's a little bit of the mobile computing it's in the bim space it's in the procedural modeling and parametric design space and it's just a further continuation using you know the kind of bleeding edge technologies that we have now to do this kind of you know what everybody is now calling generative design so is that yes. a, is that a good enough background that's yes, absolutely amazing and uh, so everything from artist architect engineering, software development, so a real true innovator with you know some artistic flair behind it. It's, it's probably why your products are doing so well. Just for the listeners, would you try and explain Hypar in just you know, sort of layman's language? You know, what, yeah. what does it do? And um, The very simplest way to explain it is that Hypar um, is a cloud system for generating buildings. That's a, that's a simplification, obviously. Um, what it allows you to do is it allows you to, we like to say, externalize your expertise. So take the algorithms that um, represent your kind of expertise for generating building systems, um, whether you're an architect, an engineer, uh, a contractor. You encapsulate those things in, in software, um, individual sort of modules of software. You push them up to the Hypar platform, and then they are constructed in a way that they can all talk to each other. So, and then you can you can use our web application to go and actually generate building systems or generate buildings, and it, it relies on a lot of the technology of the modern web uh, and the way that the services communicate with each other. And the really interesting and novel thing about it is that those services communicate with each other with really well-defined contracts in the same way, and I'll explain contracts in a sec, in the same way that we do as humans in the construction or the design process. So as an example of this, you know, if you're a structural engineer and you're working with the architect, you tell the architect, I need to know where the levels are in the building, and then I'm going to offset my structure from those levels, or I need to know where the edge of slab is in the building. And so the contract between the architect and the structural engineer is the architect says, okay, I'll give you some slab edges. And the structural engineer says, okay, from that, I'll generate some beams. Hypar works very similarly in that um, you define a thing called a slab edge. You define this concept called a slab edge. And then you define a system that takes in those slab edges and generates some beams. And so, so that is the thing that makes Hypar novel compared to all the other systems that we have out there. All the systems that we have out there right now are like based on modeling technology we've had for 40 or 50 years, right? Mm. It's like, here's a mechanical modeling application. Go model all your beams and columns and everything else. But there's no, those contracts are implicit and we talk about them. And we try and manage models in that way. We try and say, like, oh, the structural model is going to include this, but it's not going to include this. And we're going to merge it in via Revit. And we're going to visualize blah, blah, blah. And you can't move this. And you can move this. But they're not explicit. 
And so Hypar makes a lot of those contracts explicit because they need to be explicit in order to communicate data between the services on the platform. Fascinating. So it's like taking the building process and the, the outputs and almost putting it in like blocks of code, if you like, yep. and then giving ownership of the various elements to the right people. So it's not, it's not the wrong person doing the, the job and, uh, and they, they continue, but it's feeding into a whole, a whole outcome, which is yeah. building. Eventually. And there's and there's two important things there. Like one important thing is that the functions, what we call functions, the blocks of code, as you say, which is a great way to think about it. The functions are very small and purposeful. They should only do one thing and they should do that one thing really well. And they should have a really well-defined contract. Um, and then you have to think about the design of that contract and how other systems are going to consume that thing. Uh, and that makes it so that the contracts make it so that in Hypar, you might have a myriad of different systems that produce the same kind of stuff, and you can choose which system to plug in, and they're all – you can take one out and put one back in. So there's there might be multiple structural systems, for instance. One generates a concrete frame. One generates a, a steel brace frame, but they share the same contract. That is, I'm going to create beams and columns. So they're interchangeable in Hypar. You can swap them out. Basically, what you're doing is you're unhooking everything, like all the processes that people would normally go through on desktop applications. And, you know, let's put it this way. They're quite sort of heavy desktop applications because they've got every function that you might conceivably use as an architect or an engineer. So they're quite big programs, and, and it requires you to have sophisticated hardware, and you connect it basically to the desktop. <laughs> um, although there's ways to push that to the cloud, you're taking a lot of that and breaking all those functions down into many functions, yeah, and putting those in the clouds of people and then connecting them up together. So that, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, one of the yeah. challenges, and I and I always give this caveat at the beginning of podcasts. I love Revit. I built my career on Revit. Dynamo is successful because of Revit. So anything that I say, I don't want anybody to take it as like you know, I'm bashing on Revit in some way, but. The, the challenge with a technology like Revit is you get in this place where you're like, well, I'm in Revit 10 hours a day. Like, I might as well have all my tools in Revit. And just like you say, you're tied to the desktop. You, you are. And the challenge there is it makes it very hard for us to take advantage of some of the things that the cloud gives us. For instance, scalable compute. Hypar can scale up as much compute as it needs to do. Um, to do things like design option generation and optimization. It's super easy to take those little services and say, you know, I need to calculate 10 different structural solutions. Spin me up 10 different services to compute those things in parallel. That's, that's trivial to do in the cloud, but very difficult to do on the desktop with mm. these sort of historical software. Yeah, and limited hardware capabilities, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of, if I thought of an analogy, it would... You know, back if you went about 15 years ago, if you wanted to book a flight, like the only people who had access to Skyscanner was the the travel agents. You know, so they had this fancy computer, and you had to queue outside the, the travel agents on a Saturday morning to get your chance to sit down with the travel agent and, and book your your holiday. You know, that's all in the cloud now, so everyone can sit at home without any sort of difficult. Um, hardware and make their own booking you know imagine that the bot and it's one of the things that i comment online i'm taking a little bit of a twitter pause right now but when i was on twitter complaining about these things you know i look at all the brilliant work that architects are doing right now for instance using rhino compute you know so rhino is rhino compute is the 
the Rhino core um, that's been made into a web service, which you can deploy on your own um, uh, on your own system uh, and and use as the back end to a front end application. Uh, and that's that's amazing. It's a it's a cool extension of the the Rhino technology. The real challenge, though, is that these historical technologies can't be made to scale in the same way that like microservices in the cloud can be made to scale. So Hypar from the beginning, we couldn't back it with Revit. We couldn't really back it with Rhino Compute. We had to kind of build a lot of stuff from the ground up to fully take advantage of the scaling properties of the cloud. And the other point around this, like having Rhino or Revit in the back of this thing is like, if you have a system that's based in those technologies, that's the buy-in to someone using that system. And mm-hmm. and there's huge parts of the world right now where the buy, if the buy-in to using the system is buy a license to Revit, they're never going to use that system. And the yeah. web and everything that we access on the web, what it tells us is that, you know, everybody has a smartphone. Uh, uh, increasingly, everybody is going to have access to the Internet. So if you give them access to things via their smartphone and the Internet, you know, you will win. And and that's the other. Um, so we're trying to reduce the buy in as well. I don't want to say you have to go and buy uh, Rhino plus Grasshopper in order to contribute something to our system and make something useful. I don't want to say you have to go and buy Revit uh, and a computer that can run Revit. Uh, to make something useful, we want to make the buy-in as low as possible. And in terms of scalability, because I think that's a really interesting thing. If you are an architect or an engineer, then obviously you do have to perform a lot of functions, complicated tasks, etc. So you you probably need a lot of these functions. Yeah. You know, where whereas if you're let's say you're a, a screed contractor, this might resonate with you, John. But all you really need to know is, the, as you said, the slab outline. And the depth of the screed to get calculate some volume, and yeah, you know, that gives you the information that you need to be able to order enough um, materials to make up the the screed, etc. Yeah, so so you could have a much so that person doesn't need the equivalent of Revit; they just need a small function that gives them what's relevant to their their. That's, function, their that's a perfect example too, Ralph. I mean that. There's so much in the tools that we have because we've had to put it in the tools on the desktop. You know, like that's where everybody was doing their work. So we had to bake all the tools in there. And you need, you know, as as a specialty contractor or some somebody who's who's doing a small portion of the design, you need a, a tiny little fraction of that capability. And so that's where Hypar is really neat because some of the, the the services align with exactly that. You know, they align with a process boundary and give you only what you need. And, you know, the interesting thing is you could use Hypar. So we have this concept of workflows. We have functions, which are the blocks of, of capability. And then we have a workflow, which orchestrates those all together. So, you know, as you pointed out, for an architect, you might have tens of different functions in a workflow that all together orchestrate and generate the thing you need. But you could also have an app on Hypar that has one function in it that just does the calculation that you just mentioned or one function that just calculates the framing inside a wall. Um, and that thing is now just a web application that you can access on your phone and, and use, right. Or on, yeah. on any device and use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you think about this? I mean, the, I think a lot of architects are kind of stuck in a, 
let's say, a state of limbo, if you like, where on the one hand you are required through law and regulations and whatever to produce, let's call them old school types of information like drawings and schedules and to get your building code you have to cert- submit certain drawings and you know, like it's all built into the the regulations and and then on the other hand you you want to produce these data rich graphical models where everybody can collaborate and so you know so something like revit or archicad gives you the best of that if you like it gives you the ability to create the models but also the ability to generate all the outputs that you you might need under the various regulations. Like, where do you see that going in the future? That's not, that's not going to change quickly because obviously you'd have to change the regulations and the law. And- I don't harbor any delusions that that is going to change anytime soon. Um, but it is kind of funny. Like our software has come to look like the industry, right? Our, our software, there's an old joke about married people. You know, they come to look like each other after like a long time. Like our software has come to look like the risk that we're all worried about shedding. It's come to look like the delivery, you know, the, the, the documents that we have to deliver to the city, you know, and so you're right. We're in this limbo where architects are feeling this excitement about all the technology that's out there and they're imagining what they could do if they had model based delivery and these kinds of things, but they're, but they're stuck having to deliver things the way they still do. Um, so the, the way that this conversation is going around Hypar right now is we know that drawings aren't going to go along, uh, away anytime soon. So what we're going to do, but but at the same time, we don't want to turn Hypar into a drawing generation platform necessarily, yeah, um, yeah. because because that's a that's a very different and expensive problem to solve well. And Revit has solved that problem pretty well. Revit and ArchiCAD and others have solved that problem pretty well. So the position that we're taking is we're going to make it so that Hypar can generate huge amounts of like model data and make it super easy to change and iterate on and optimize. And, and then that thing should be compatible with those applications that you now use to cut your drawings, right? Mm -hmm. You should be able to generate models and do really lightweight design optioneering in Hypar and then take that stuff and just put it in Revit and then do your set, you know, your drawing set from there. Cause we don't really, we want to use the tools that we have for what they're really good at. Revit is really good at making coordinated drawings. So we'll use Hypar to do generation of all this stuff in the cloud, use Revit. But having said that, we do have people who want to completely divorce themselves from Revit. We just had a conversation yesterday with a large self-performed contractor here in the United States who, and we have this conversation a lot, said, I want to get out of Revit. I want to, I don't think I need Revit in my pipeline. Here's what I need. What I need is drawings that come out of this process that are like some specialty drawing for my, uh, you know, my pour layout, my concrete pour layout or my rebar layout or whatever. You know, there's, there's tons of different types of drawings, shop drawings, um, fabrication drawings. And a lot of those could be automated on the back of the same systems that, that are in Hypar generating the 3D stuff could also be generating the 2D stuff. So they're trying to convince us like, okay, you guys generate all this cool looking 3D stuff. We can visualize that in the browser. What would be super useful to us is if you could also just generate this simple shop drawing that represents this thing, you know, because that's another place where Revit actually isn't great. So Revit's great for doing like architectural or structural building drawings, but it's not great for doing shop drawings, uh, which are keyed to the sort of thing that's generated, you know, but are oftentimes very automatable. 
So there might be some drawing creation capability that comes online in Hypebar in some form, but it'll probably be of that form. So that, that industry's dragging you into the into the past, is it? <laughs> well, I, and I should say, I don't. I mean, uh, drawing is a form no. of data compression, right? And it's a very useful form of data compression in a lot of different phases in the process of building a building. So I want to support those where it's useful and totally makes sense. But no, I don't see Hypebar getting dragged fully into like, you know, make my my plans that have to go my my building plans that have to go to the city. No, no, I was just joking. Sorry. Um, (laughs) John. Just want to be clear. Yeah, absolutely. So this actually I had one last question, John, before we go on. Is you spoke about you know Revit doing what it does well and Hyper doing what it does well. Is there a connection between like a live connection between the two, or is it you you do your design work and once you've said okay that's the design, it's like let's bring it into Revit and then then it's divorced basically from the Hyper or. Well, so we have we did something really quite cool and we haven't really shouted from the rooftops about it yet um because we we're a small team and we have a lot of irons and a lot of different fires so our revit integration has two parts right now one is um one is a is a typical sort of import export you know we've got what are called converters hypar at its core has this library called the elements library which is part of our open source uh, stack and it creates the elements, which are the things in a building, columns, beams, walls, windows, doors, that kind of stuff. We have a converter architecture where you as a contributor of a different type of element to the system can also provide a converter, which is a very simple interface to generate, to make calls to the Revit API to generate Revit stuff. So you can com- you can create both the element types and the converters, and that allows you to import export stuff from Revit as real Revit elements. Yeah, and we have a pretty rich set of converters already to do that stuff. That's kind of typical. But when we started Hypar, we wanted to see if we could hook into Hypar Live so that you could actually see the entire context of a Hypar model in your Revit model, but allow you the flexibility and the speed of doing design in Hypar but seeing it superimposed in a larger context of a Revit model. So yeah. A few Revit cycles ago, they released an API uh, that allows you to stream graphics directly into the graphics pipeline in Revit. Um, and they did this because of some of their larger sort of integrations with things like Navisworks, where people wanted to stream in large models, but they didn't actually want them to be part of Revit. Wow. They didn't want, yeah. yeah, they didn't want them to be stored in the Revit file. So we made half of Hypar's integration is actually this thing that we call the hub and the hub is actually actively watching a workflow in Hypar, watching for changes. And whenever those changes happen, it's streaming that visualization directly into Revit. And so what's really cool about this is that you can imagine, we always thought that one use case for Hypar would be Hypar's kind of like looking over your shoulder and calculating things when you change things in Revit. Mm. So imagine, you know, um, anything that you would want to visualize but don't actually want to see in Revit. I made the example of concrete pour locations earlier, right? Imagine, or, or concrete pour phasing. Imagine as you're drawing in Revit, like you draw a slab or you draw a building, you're changing the shape of the building and change the slabs. And in the cloud, this poor layout is being calculated for you because there's a hypar workflow that's just watching. And then it's streaming the visualization of that 
back in superimposed on that slab. So now you have a piece of construction logic that is real time being superimposed even on an architectural design model. Imagine like bringing that kind of feedback from that far end of the, the process all the way back to the designer. And that's all possible, you know, because Hypar is just doing this stuff in the cloud and it's emitting events whenever it updates. And the hub is catching those events and saying, okay, show me the visualization and then streaming that into Reddit. It's really cool. And we haven't even started. We've, we've got a couple of demos. There's probably a couple of videos on our YouTube where, where you can see this. We mm -hmm. haven't really even come up with a super compelling demo yet, but the tech is really neat. Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating idea because one of the challenges in the industry is sort of junior people don't have the expertise, but they tend to be the ones who are working around in the, the models. Yeah, and then it needs a senior person to come and, as you say, look over their shoulder. Whereas what you're describing there, I was just envisaging a senior person could put their logic of how to, let's say you were optimizing the pause of the slab, embed their knowledge and logic into a function and yeah, that could be guiding a junior person as to what's the best way to, to reconfigure this lab. Yeah, so junior, I mean, that, I mean, we have discussions with a lot of, especially contractors here in the United States who do have a very real concern about expertise aging out of the profession mm -hmm. and not being able to backfill quickly enough and, and have those people trained up at the same level. So is technology a way to sort of externalize some of that expertise and make it available? So there's the expertise thing the young to old generation thing but there's also there is also this idea of cross domain transfer of knowledge so the example that i was giving there is like you know an architect just draws a slab on a page but how that slab gets made and the ramifications of what design decisions are ultimately going to cost in terms of how that thing gets constructed are usually something that's meted out over emails and conversations and lawsuits and everything else later on in the process. What if you yeah. can pull a lot of that logic back upstream as well and give, you know, construction information, you know, just superimposed right there onto uh, uh, design time information as well? Fascinating. John, sorry, I've been hogging the floor here, but uh, it's just really interesting stuff. But I know John's yeah. on the same page as everyone. We we're all looking for the future, the, the internet of construction and apps, mini services, microservices, and all these things. Um, I'm sure you have some questions or yeah. comments. <laughs> well, not as many as you, Ralph. <laughs> but um, um, the, I suppose the main reason there is, I mean, for your interest is because you were you were an architect and you can obviously... I'm sure when you see when you see technology like this, it really has the potential to disrupt uh, a workflow like, uh, you know, you're working your way of working and other other architects and engineers. So their design teams ways, ways of working. And it's really exciting to see Hyper come to come to the industry because it obviously it's like a tidal wave in terms of. Um, the way that people are actually, I think it's the first tidal wave to hit design in, in a long time in terms of like, you know, really showing how, how can, an alternative and viable way to, uh, think about designing buildings as well. It really, the, yeah, it's, it is really interesting, but it's, for me, um, I suppose my questions are, 
you know, like, how do you see, obviously, this is, um, you know, the, this technology is very focused around, you know, this 3D models, uh, data in space, um, and the design stage of the, of the, of the building procurement process. I'm interested to know now what happens to co- when it comes to construction and operations. Do you see platform or because as you, as you describe Hyper and I'm sure other listeners as well, they're, they'd, they'd be like, or for me, what it seems is that it's a, it's a centralized platform that can essentially replace Revit and BIM 360 in a way. Would you agree with that? Would you to start with? You're going to get me in trouble here, John. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to answer that question. Well, okay. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me tackle a couple bits of that. So on the construction side, we actually found, you know, it's interesting in the life of the company, when Anthony and I started the Anthony Houck, my, my co-founder, uh, and one of my, my colleagues when I was at Autodesk, when, when we started the company, we kind of bet that architects were not going to be our first customers because there are things embedded in Hypar which are very challenging to architecture as a profession. The idea that you are going to embed your expertise, your authorship in this function, and then you're going to deploy it at a scale where like not only your entire team can use it, but all your also your entire organization and potentially the entire world is so different to the concepts of authorship in architecture as they are right now, that we knew that this was going to be like a little bit of a a big lift for for architecture early on. And so we started having a lot of conversations in spaces which we knew didn't have this kind of existential hand-wringing real estate. That's all about the metrics, the financial metrics that drive the decisions about how to build the building and also construction. So, you know, in the United States and, and also in Europe and other places in the world, Construction is becoming uh, highly, highly um, sophisticated in how it starts to use technology, and it's and it's doing it in a couple of different ways. There's the VDC way, which is virtual design construction, where they're starting to model everything, process modeling, uh, 3D modeling, all of the collaboration that's done on site is now mediated through uh, giant models that are federated together, and that whole process is driven by the contractors. And then all the other kinds of modeling, which I've mentioned here, you know, there's a thousand other problems that contractors are trying to solve. How do I do my concrete form work? How do I do my temporary support structures? How do I do, you know, there's, we, we talk about these all the time. And they're just modeling those things by hand, just like architects are and everything else. So they found, wait, a lot of these things are algorithms. I have an algorithm that me as a contractor who's been doing this for 40 years, I know exactly how to deploy my materials on site and stage them. But that's a specific spatial problem. Like I know kind of like how I'm going to place my cranes on site. Again, a spatial optimization problem, you know. So they have hundreds, if not thousands, of these little problems that could each turn into a function. We just talked to somebody two days ago about crane placement. Crane placement is like a serious thing on a big job site, you know, because cranes are hard to move around. You got to make sure that they're not in each other's way. You got to make sure that they can pick the things they need to pick and lift the amount of uh, weight that they need to lift. And 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 that's just something that can be embedded in a function and visualized, you know. So so contractors were a very early kind of interesting, and because it, neither Anthony nor I came out of construction, 
we didn't have any idea the number of really interesting and awesome challenges that they had that were so well aligned with the platform. So that's one. The other one that's very interesting is building product manufacturers. Building product manufacturers, that is the people who manufacture the stuff that goes inside the buildings. A lot of those um, building product manufacturers have to design their systems in order to make the sale of the system, but they only make the money on the sale of the system. So if you're Hilti and you um, make, for instance, all the hardware that hangs mechanical systems in the building. So if you look in a building and you look up at the slab and there's a mechanical system hanging there, those, all the Hilti components and stuff that's hanging there, that's what they make their money on, selling you the components. But that's a design system that has to be engineered for the <clears throat> for the weight, for seismic, for all this stuff. And they they usually do that engineering at a loss because they want to make the sale on the hardware. But the engineering is is based on algorithms. It's based on, okay, how many of these hanger brackets do I need at what spacing, so on and so forth. And that's all stuff you look up in a catalog right now. It's a PDF that's given to you by Hilti, you know, if you're an engineer. And so automating that kind of stuff has a high value for them because it does, it drives their uh, design engineering costs down and gets them to that sale more quickly. So that's another one of these areas that we didn't know we were going to be in. And now we're having a lot of really awesome conversations to the point of like whether this replaces systems that exist out there. You know, there is such inertia in our industry right now around several companies and several pieces of software that we're not naive enough to believe that we're just going to overcome that inertia as if by magic. What we imagine is going to happen is that Hypar is going to be an augmenting technology in its early days that's going to supercharge your workflows in those other applications. And like I said before, get you to a BIM more quickly than you can, for instance, in Revit but then also allow you throughout that process of building your Revit, your BIM in Revit to allow you to visualize these other kinds of processes that are being computed in the cloud. And then over time, if we're successful as a company and we play our cards right, we will take away larger and larger pieces of what those applications do now. And I think maybe, Ralph, you said earlier, the idea that we would dissolve those capabilities into just this fabric of services that are running in the cloud and you can access as much of them whenever you need them at whatever scale you need them and you can pay as you use that stuff that's what will happen over time is like it will just the desktop applications that we use today will dissolve into this fabric of services that we use in the future like apps on your phone i mean you know the app does one thing and that's all it does but you know, you have a, a collection of apps that gets you through your day and does all the different things you need. But yeah, if, if and you, that's if you if you don't need all apps, you don't want to buy sort of a massive suite of apps that cost you you know five grand a year, or whatever. Just if you need only three or four functions within that. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Right, and there's another interesting thing about that analogy. The analogy to apps or to to services that are running in a cloud. They also pursue now integrations. So one app might say, oh, I really want to, it's a value to my customers to also be able to integrate with this other app. So that other app has an API. Let me just talk to that API. And John, I know this is something that you guys do with Bin Launcher, and you've done a lot of work with Node-RED and other kinds of ways of connecting systems in the cloud. 
that will happen here as well. You know, you might just need that one little app that does the screed calculation like you were talking about earlier. But then you find, oh, I also need the thing that does the poor stop, uh, you know, design on the edge of slabs, whatever. And I want to connect those two things together. Mm. Let me just reach out to that service and call that API and allow these things to be orchestrated. Yeah. And if someone has a bespoke function that, you know, they, let's say they do build some of their expertise into a function, um, is there the opportunity to still protect that expertise but somehow share it without sharing? Share this This was the question on day one. You know, the yeah. first customers <laughs> of Hypar said, well, we're going to give, we're going to put our proprietary stuff in the cloud and we're going to allow, we want to run it through Hypar. How do we protect that? So we, we take pains to tell everybody the code that you publish and on Hypar is yours and yours alone. We don't even see it actually. We see a compiled binary that gets executed on our system. You can choose, we have really fine grained access control. So you can choose to share that thing with your team, uh, your whole organization, or you can make that thing public and share it with the world. But ultimately that code lives with you. And, and also there's a line between that and open source as well. You can also choose to make that code open source and make the code available for other people to tinker with if you if you want, but it's not a requirement of being on Hypar. Yeah, yeah. And um, you recently gave a talk to the AIA and you know, just talking about the future of the profession. Obviously, that was the Institute of Architects in America. So um, you were talking about architects and you made some really interesting points about and coming back to scale, like. It, like we know, architects are not involved in the majority of the built environment. I think it's, I don't know what, it's something like 5% of buildings, it's a, it's a very low percentage of buildings actually involve architecture and good architecture, good urban planning, etc. And the rest is, you know, just cobbled together by people who aren't <laughs> trained in that profession. And so it's become a, almost an elitist service that certain people can afford, but the majority of people can't afford and can't access. And, and, and a lot of that is the cost of doing architecture because of the sort of slow and mundane processes that we go through, which is, is exactly what you're saying, I think, is that if you begin to capture some of that knowledge and let computers do what computers do well and let the humans do what the humans do well, and combine the two, then you can deliver a much bigger scale of architecture to a much broader market, which is affordable. Is that a, is that a summary of your message? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty good summary. And the you know the thing that was interesting about the AIA talk is that they you know before that talk they they asked me to talk about equity and inclusion and diversity and all these things which are very important to the AIA as they pertain to their membership. But I kind of turned the question outward looking to the world. And I said, how can we talk about equity in the built environment if, to your point, so much of the built environment is never touched by an architect? And so let's look at that problem. Like, why is it? Well, and, and again, to your point, it's probably because architecture is a rich man's game. And why is that? Well, it's because every building from the beginning of time, starts from scratch. You know, uh, I credit Anthony fully with this. When we first started Hypar, you know, we he had this deck that had a picture that was just like the Revit crosshairs. 
you know, the, like the little section view indicators, like a blank page with just the section indicators on it, which was an upgrade of an earlier deck that he had, which just had the AutoCAD crosshairs on a completely blank screen. And he'd been talking about this for a really long time, this concept that like why after thousands of years of building buildings is every building still start from nothing? You know, think about that. Like, how many stadiums has a company that builds stadiums and, and gets their next stadium project? How many stadiums have they probably done before? Hospitals, schools, whatever your specialization is as an architecture firm, you've probably done one or maybe many dozens of those before. Why are you starting from a blank page, laboriously building a BIM over months and months and months that then is, like, hard to change? Why don't you embed some of the logic for how your design process works into the tools that enable you to get to decision-making faster. Because really, you can't also get to making good decisions until you have enough sort of meat on the bone, you know, to look at. And and so the whole process is super expensive. We start from scratch. It takes us a long time to build the models. It takes us a long time to make decisions. We usually run out of time to make decisions, so you get a version of the thing that represents, you know, whatever you had time to to, to optioneer. And and then on the next project, you start it all over again. And you also don't convey any of that uh, uh, expertise from one generation in your firm to the next generation in the firm, except by word of mouth, which was, you know, for the f- many thousands of years, which is how humans communicated knowledge to each other. And then we started writing things down. And then we came up with computer software, which is a really good way to encode, literally encode capabilities or knowledge in a system. And we got really good at using that in other industries. And we've just kind of been really bad at using it in AEC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose um, while you were talking there, it's not as if every architect starting from scratch, because obviously you have expertise and things. But I think the, the big problem there is the expertise is sitting in the head of of somebody who's been through the stadium project, for instance. And so for the next project, that person then has to communicate what they know to somebody who's, who's joined the team. So, and, and often there's this tier of people, you know, the junior people, as, as I said earlier, they, they might be fresh out of college, they don't really have any expertise, but they, they're doing a lot of the, let's say, call it the grunt work, if you like, making lots of mistakes because they don't have the expertise. And, but they have to make the mistakes to be, in order to go and to show it to somebody high up the food chain to say, well, is that right? And then the person is going to say, no, that's not right. Actually, that doesn't work. And, and, and that, it's at, at that point that the expertise gets shared, hopefully learned. I don't know. You know, so it's very slow and, 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 and cumbersome. In, and even like I used to work for a big architectural practice in Ireland and, you know, so there were a number of teams and even though people would obviously communicate and talk at, at lunchtime and whatever, the actual learning of each team, even in, within one company, uh, hardly got shared you know, amongst the teams. So you end up with a team that is the housing team and the, you know, the, the healthcare team and the, because, yeah, they've had the expertise, but they haven't. It hasn't been shared. So your idea of sort of capturing the knowledge in blocks of code, which then helps. You know, well, firstly, it captures the knowledge in case, let's say, somebody left the company. That would be disastrous if they spent ten years with your company gaining expertise and then left your company. Uh, but also, it's it's that expertise is 
uh, helping everybody else learn and do things faster, and not and not do it not do it wrong first, just to get it corrected, but try and do it right the first time. So, so I, I also should caveat. I mean, there are firms that are probably amazing at knowledge capture and reuse and training and everything else. And I'm, I'm going to talk, you know, way out over my skis and people listening will probably say like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He hasn't worked in a firm like ours, which is really good about this. So I know that's out there. So for those firms, I say, okay, the other side of this problem is scale. The thing that all everybody in the AIA is talking about is how do we increase our market? Like how do we, as a firm of 10, 15, 20, 50 people, how do we become a firm that can win bigger projects? How do we compete with bigger firms? You know, And this idea that you as a consulting engineer or architect only has as much time in the day as you do to answer the phone or to write emails and be part of the design process, that is an inhibitor of scale so what if you, instead of being a single individual, and, and this is a crazy idea, and this is why I say it's very challenging to architects, but what if all of the knowledge inside your architecture firm was externalized into a fleet of services that could be deployed so that somebody on the other side of the planet who you would not in a traditional capacity ever engage with has access to your expertise and can pay you for deploying that expertise on their project mediated by technology instead of mediated by the the typical sort of structure of the consulting engagement so john what do you think is it's getting towards your dream of the internet of construction yeah Um, well i'm (laughs) i'm interested to know well the interest to talk about hyper elements and the role that that had to play with, I suppose, the success of your platform. Obviously, hyper elements, to my mind, is a common representation of common objects found in BIM models. And you have converters to and from different platforms, such as Revit. I mean, like the success of hyper elements would depend on the adoption of hyper elements by more than just hyper in terms of representation for for a, a type of object how is that going um i mean <laughs> yeah i've seen uh, i've seen a lot of activity around uh, your engagement with ifc uh, but that yep. was years ago i mean yeah has frustration led, led to you kicking the bucket with that or have you been like no you know what ifc has its place let's create create these hyper elements and have a converter to ifc that will take that box or where where do you stand with that now so so when you know john when you and i first met maybe 3 years ago I think it was probably predicated on some of the social media discourse that was happening at the time around IFC because so so just a little bit of history there you know Autodesk gives people this sabbatical every 4 years you're allowed to take a sabbatical for a month or something so I was sitting on a beach in Hawaii thinking if I were to start a company right now what would be the tech stack that I would use to to do the proto version of Hypar. And, okay, I want to generate stuff for the built environment. I need some way of representing building elements. Okay, what's the, what's the industry standard out there 
IFC. Okay, cool. Let's go find software libraries that allow me to build stuff in IFC. Wait a second. There's no like really well-supported, well-documented, usable cross-platform, you know, IFC toolkits out there that aren't some gargantumongous kind of thing. How is this a thing? How are we expected as software developers to build the next generation of tools for our industry and the standard around which we're supposed to be sharing our data is not only are there not great toolings for that in a lot of the different languages that we use in the web, on the web and in the cloud, JavaScript, you know, for instance, being one of them. Um, but also the API for that is incredibly difficult to use. And am I going to hand that over to Hypar users and say, now you have to learn IFC's way of structuring a BIM? So I was like, oh, man, this is problematic. I think we need a better API. So Elements started from this idea of not wanting to replace IFC in any way. IFC was always seen as a compatibility mechanism into the applications that we use now that have IFC integration. Elements started as a way to provide a better API, a more usable way for somebody to create an element that goes in a building. So in, in, hypo, in elements, you can just say, I want a new beam. And it has like several parameters that you have to supply. And then that thing gets added to a model and that's it. You don't have to know anything about references or relationships or any of the structures inside IFC. IFC very much came from a place of like being designed by big software companies for use inside big software companies, inside the products inside those software companies. Since IFC's design, you know, the whole software world has changed. Now, you know, if your library, if your open source library isn't something that I can pull down via NPM in a one-liner and start using with a tiny little bit of documentation or example code, nobody's going to use it. So Elements was built with that in mind. It was like, what does a modern developer want to use? What do they? What do I want that experience to be? So, so one of the things that's core to, and the other thing that's core to Elements is its extensibility. So the other problem around something like IFC is like, you know, IFC is a fixed sort of ontology of what should be in a building. Well, there's all kinds of stuff that's not represented in there. And every few years, the IFC committees get together and argue about what should be inside IFC. They're doing that right now with rail. Okay, so the whole rail industry wants to represent stuff via IFC. They're getting together and arguing like these rail sweeps should be in there and these other kind of like equipment that are on rail. Okay, in elements, you just define a new schema in JSON schema for the thing that you want. Let's call it a slab edge pour stop. That's a thing. <laughs> Let's make a slab edge pour stop thing. And it and its representation, its its spatial representation is actually just like a, a, a flangey piece of metal that's extruded along some path that's provided in the constructor to that thing. And you create this element, and now it's a first-class citizen in the whole BIM. It's not some bolted-on thing. Um, it, it looks and feels like everything else. It's a first-class citizen in the model. Now... Elements, the open source library, everything you create with that serializes to IFC because that was always the idea was that you should be able to take anything that you create via elements, serialize it to IFC, and then use that import mechanism for ARCHICAD, Vectorworks, Tecla, you name it. You know, that was your that was your pathway to BIM. Now, you might ask from that, well, why are you making Revit 
integrations then? Why don't you just use IFC? Well, the other problem with IFC is that in a lot of these contexts, it's been so underfunded in its integration inside some of these softwares that the integration is just kind of broken. And where it's not broken, it's not fully compliant because the spec sort of contradicts itself or for a lot of different reasons. And Revit's a perfect example of this. People really want IFC to work really well inside Revit. And Autodesk actually wants it to work well as well. The problem is the IFC spec is so big and so heavy, it's been hard to implement it in a way that like it actually works exactly the way that you're going to expect it to work. So people have also said to us, like, I've done the IFC th in Revit thing before. I don't really want that to be my path into Revit from Hypar. I want you to have a direct path that creates elements, you know, Revit elements directly from Hypar elements. So, sorry, that's a that's a rambly explanation of where elements came from. Excellent. So, just to continue on with that question, just to confirm there that the Hyper Elements you said serialized to IFC, but that I assume that's uh, another step. It's not the the core object that's used within Hyper. So, like for example. Like with this beam, do you like you define it in JSON schema, and then you you know that's in a function. You you might I don't know pass it to some sort of a yeah pass it to a function which generates which generates an IFC compatible beam, or is it a JSON schema represent, representation of a beam? This is used throughout the Hyper platform, and then at any point, then it can be serialized to IFC. So the way so the way that it works is um, we say that elements is schema first. If you want to add a new type to the system, you go and define a JSON schema. We have a bunch of code generation technology that will generate actual source code. We generate in C sharp right now, but in the future we'll support other languages as well. Generate the C sharp source code, and then you can use that right in writing Hypar functions. But the data that gets passed around between services in Hypar is the elements representation which is usually like the smallest. And we like to say that elements should be the smallest amount of data that's needed to usefully convey that information from one, from one process to another. So for instance, a beam, if you're a structural engineer, a beam as you see it is just two points in space with a stiffness, <laughs> you know, and, and a cross section. That's, that's it. You shouldn't have to convey more than that. So you might have a representation of a beam for you that's a structural beam uh, that only encodes that information. So that's the kind of stuff that's getting passed around inside Hypar. Only at the point at which you say export to IFC does any of that stuff get serialized mm -hmm. out as IFC. Fascinating. We, we're running out of time yet, but I wanted to ask before a little bit about innovation because AEC Hive is about encouraging people in the AEC sector to, to get into innovation because – like the general feeling is there's a low level of innovation, low level of R&D, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of innovation and things happening at project level, but it's it's not an industry known for big investment into R&D, et cetera. Because you're obviously at the cutting edge. You've been at the cutting edge through your work at Vera Hapold, Vila Systems, you know, of innovation. How, how would you say innovation actually happens? Like, is it just a spark of brilliance and no, no. some hard work? Or is it, like, is it quite deliberate and organized? You know, just if you're encouraging other people out there who have, have ideas and they, they, they want to pursue these ideas and, um, yeah. 
what's your, your view on the fun- how innovation functions? Well, so first, thank you for for suggesting that I've been on the sort of edge of innovation. To, to me, and maybe this is the answer to your question, it doesn't seem like innovation. It just seems like an evolution of things that I've worked on before. You know, Hypar solves some of the fundamental problems that visual programming languages like Revit and or like Dynamo on Revit and Grasshopper on Rhino cannot solve. And it's one of the reasons we had to make Hypar in the way that we did and we had to build some things from scratch was because that next stage in the evolution required us building that stuff in that way. We couldn't, you know, Anthony and I, and our CTO, Matt Campbell, all come from Autodesk. The, the two of them were on Revit. They were on the Revit core team. Like, they built a lot of the Revit technology. So we could have just built an add-on to Revit, you know, probably would have gotten us a lot more users a lot more quickly. <laughs> There's a million Revit users sitting out there. We could have just, like, and that was the success of Dynamo, right? You build it on top of Revit. You you can piggyback on that success. But sometimes in evolution, there needs to be a bigger step. There needs to be a bigger investment in change. And to us, being on the web, being in the cloud, being having a large part of what we're doing, being open source, was super important to providing the platform for that next generation of evolution. So we had to, you know, we had to invest a lot to do that. So to everybody out there who's thinking about innovation, I would say, you know, we're at a point in this industry now where innovation might look like, oh, I'm going to build a Rhino compute-backed thing with a web application for viewing my Rhino models and everything else, and I see 10,000 of these every day. Unfortunately, that's not innovation. Unfortunately, innovation, the next steps in innovation in our industry are going to take a lot of energy and capital um, to, to do, and they are going to the people who decide to do that are going to be up against that inertia that I talked about earlier. Prepare yourself for a slog. You know, prepare yourself to fight the good fight for a number of years because removing people from these entrenched workflows that they have now, buying any mindshare at all to get people to try your tool after they've spent 10 hours a day, like trying to deliver drawings in Revit, because that's, that's the industry as we know it. It's huge. We, we just actually did a, we just did a, um, we're, we're gathering all these metrics on Hypar now, which are trying to, we, we gather these metrics to measure our success against these hypotheses that we make about where the industry needs to go. And one of the interesting metrics is, you know, there's a 50-50 split right now between people who try Hypar during the week and people who try it on the weekend. And what that tells me is that everybody's hair is on fire during the week. You're just trying to get your drawings out the door, right? So it's not until the weekend when you have an opportunity to sit down and say, oh, I'm having coffee on a Sunday morning. Let me try that Hypar thing that I've been thinking about. And you have that moment to capitalize on that person's attention. Mm. And if you fail in that moment, you know, you don't know when you're going to get that person's attention again. So yeah. so that means that just for us, like, it's a it's a it's a long fight that we need to fight, but somebody needs to fight it. So that's the last thing I'd say that, you know, if you're worried about, like, taking that next step, somebody has to take that next step in our industry. And there's so much opportunity. It's a huge industry. 
there's so much opportunity. Um, and, and I would say on behalf of Hypar, we just want to help provide the platform that allows a lot of people to take that next step without having to build a lot of that stuff themselves, right? And that's probably what a lot of innovators are thinking is, you know, I've got to start, I'm on my own. You know, I've got to start from scratch. Uh, but what I think what you're saying there is, in terms of the evolution, is you're always building on work that's gone before you. You know, like so. There's, I mean, there's been fantastic projects, I suppose, if you want to call them that, in in the past years. Uh, things like Flux and Speckle, and you know, like so things are happening, and it's like you shouldn't actually start from scratch. You should try and see a and group of companies that are kind of moving to the same vision of a of a, a connected industry and work with them rather than against them. I will also say what we're doing with Hypar, I probably shouldn't say this, it's not brilliant. What we are doing is we are taking models from other industries like the software industry where open source has exploded in the last two decades, where communication and collaboration on code has exploded in the last two decades, where the tooling for creating microservices and standing up these scalable infrastructure and everything else has exploded in the last two decades. And we are piggybacking on all of that. And we're just trying to take some of those models and start applying them to our industry and wrapping them in tooling that makes them palatable for our industry. So it's also just like, you know, some some of innovation is just synthesizing stuff that's happening in other industries into ours. Absolutely. Fascinating and really inspiring talk. John, do you have any last questions or comments? Many last questions, many last comments, no time, Ralph. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was great to have you and great to catch you up. And I look, wish you the best with Hyper. And who knows, we might be collaborating in the near future. <laughs> yeah, happy, uh, happy um, to come so. on again and answer any more questions you might have, John. Brilliant, and Thanks. Yeah, and we've also we've created the ACI community platform, and it's 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 basically a place for companies like Hyper and others to tell people what you're doing. So if you feel you you want to have a rant about something or talk discuss something, uh, feel free to put a post up there and see if we can get some engagement with people and uh, continue to follow the the work you the great work you're doing with with, with interest. So any last words of inspiration to the listeners? Well, I don't know if it's last words of inspiration, but check us out, hypar.io. It's it's totally free to sign up, and there's we have a pretty gratuitous free tier. You can go and play with Hypar and do lots of executions, and uh, and please give us feedback. You can we have a Discord channel, uh, Discord server now, where we communicate daily with the community of people, and of course you can find us on Twitter at Hypar AEC as well. We love communicating with people who are using the platform, trying it out, and telling us what works, what doesn't work, what's broken, what could be better. Yeah. Excellent. Well, from my side as well, I just want to say thank you very much for your time. It was a fascinating talk, and and we could have gone on for much longer, I'm pretty sure, but uh, we do appreciate your time, and uh, I'm sure we'll speak again. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah.